Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Alright, I want to start by telling you what chapter 17 is not about. And what chapter 17 is not about is, in some ways, the best stuff in chapter 17 here in Seminar 16. Chapter 17 is not about math, but it's got some great riffs on math. Check out, for instance, page 7 in the translation with which we're working. The paragraph toward the bottom, insofar as the theory of mathematics. I will not say as culminated because already it is sliding forward. But let us say with what constitutes its point of equilibrium in our time set theory. Ah, here we are, a great mid to late 1960s touchstone for Lacan is set theory. And you've heard me say it before, but anytime he starts touching on set theory, you know he's about to come clean. And it's no surprise here in chapter 17 that when set theory pops up, we get some pretty clear statements of what he's all about. Check this out. In set theory, we note that the essential of the numerical ordination is reduced in it to what it is, to its articulatory possibilities. And here we get a great clue as to why set theory is so relevant to Lacan's work. Set theory is a reduction of the numerical ordinations that usually shore up mathematical thought to articulatory possibilities. And articulatory possibilities, you should hear this as a statement on the differential relations that also are central to Lacan's linguistic theory, signifiers related to other signifiers in a differential system known as language. Articulatory possibilities is also relevant here. But let's see where Lacan goes with this. It is constructed to strip this numerical order of all its ideal or idealized privileges. So set theory is designed to strip the numerical order of mathematics of all its ideal or idealized privileges. What those are remain to be seen. Those that I was evoking as I could just now in recalling for you what was the capital O1, the capital T2, indeed one or other number in a tradition that we can describe broadly as capital G Gnostic. Set theory precisely is constructed to strip this numerical ordering, and this is what I call of ideal or imaginary privileges of the unit. Now, if we reread that sentence without the interlude, it reads a little cleaner. Set theory precisely is constructed to strip this numerical ordering of the unit. The unit is precisely what set theory undermines when it shifts to articulatory possibilities instead. And this unit, you have to hear it as a one, as a union, 
as a unus, as all of the universes that Lacan is constantly undermining in the mid to late 1960s. Set theory is great because it cuts to the bone, to the central bone of mathematical theory, which is the unit. And it subverts that by reducing it, expanding it, calling it out for its articulatory possibilities, namely within a set. Let's see where he goes. This is, there is no trace of the unit in Piano's definitions. A number is defined with respect to zero and the function of the successor. The unit has no privilege in it of unity, of corporality, of essentialness, of totality itself. So here again, set theory is appealing because it is a mathematical theory that allows us to talk about why the big other doesn't exist, why totality is unachievable, why instead of oneness, we have articulatory possibilities. Oneness, whatever it is, is going to be an effect, something that you can do atop with articulatory possibilities, but truly, truly, always at the level of fantasy. Remember, the fundamental fantasy is that oneness exists, that wholeness can be attained. Uh, and what set theory does is it calls the bluff of that fundamental fantasy. It must be clearly marked, Lacan continues, by the fact that an example cannot in any way be confused with a class, and by some feature like the fact that to speak about the part is profoundly contrary to the functioning of the theory that the term subset is very precisely constructed to show that one cannot in any way inscribe in it the whole is made that the whole is made up of the sum of its parts so you can hear a kind of a, a return and slight critique of aristotle here um, the the whole is uh, not going to be the sum of its parts um, it's certainly not in excess of the sum of its parts and there is no sum of parts that would result in a whole. But you can also hear this as the starting place for late 60s contemporary French social thinking around multiplicity. Set theory is a mathematical theory of the multiple, of multiplicity. That's what Lacan's getting at here. It is against the idealizations, the, the privileged idealizations of oneness, of the unit, of unus, um, of completion that you otherwise see at the level of, of numerical ordination in math. And it's with set theory that Lacan thinks he's on some firm mathematical footing to argue instead that the starting place is going to be that of the multiple. And so there's this long tradition from Heraclitus to Badiou. And Lacan is along, the, is, is along that spectrum here, thinking multiplicity as the foundation versus the kind of metaphysical um, approach of oneness being a foundation. And you can think of this from Parmenides to the key figure here in the tradition, which would be Plato with the theory of forms and, and all the way up uh, into what dominates as the fundamental fantasy um, for the neurotic. Here, Lacan is putting himself squarely in this alternate tradition from Heraclitus to Badiou. And don't forget that Badiou's theory of the multiple is, is also coming straight from Lacan. 
he doesn't make any qualms about this. In fact, he pretty readily admits that what he's doing with multiplicity, he learned from Lacan. Mathematics comes up again a few pages later, really toward the end of chapter 17. In our translation, it's on page 16. And again, uh, it is just a reminder that this is not what chapter 17 is about. But it is a pretty fiery little passage here. Uh, it's on page 16, middle of the page. It starts about with the word arithmetic. So lots of great stuff in here on math and set theory, but that's not what this chapter is about. Similarly, he shifts to arithmetic at the level of the sexual relation, or lack thereof, as we're going to see. But I don't think that's what chapter 17 is about either. Nevertheless, it's hella interesting. That there is a homology between these flaws of logic and the structure of desire, Lacan says, insofar as it is in the final term a connotation of the knowledge of relationships of the man and the woman by something that is most surprising through the lack or the non-lack of an organon, of an instrument, in other words, the phallus. That the enjoyment of the instrument creates a barrier to the enjoyment that is the enjoyment of the big O other insofar as the big O other is only represented by a body in a word, as I stated, I think with sufficient force, that there is nothing that can be structured that is properly the sexual act. So where has Lacan stated this with sufficient force? If you know our series on seminar 14, this is one of the main claims that comes from that wild and woolly seminar. In seminar 14, although it's titled The Logic of Fantasy, what we see is Lacan beginning to work out his famous claim that would culminate in his work in seminars 19 and 20, that there is no sexual rapport, that there is no sexual relation. In 14, he explains that there is no sexual act for precisely the same reason. Here he's saying, I've already talked about that with sufficient force. And in seminar 16, I believe he's here referring back to what he's doing in 14. You can check out our series on 14 and hear more about why there is no sexual act for similar reasons to there being no big other. What's also interesting here is the emphasis on the notion of act. One thing that we've seen in seminar 16 is that psychoanalysis has a lot to say about sex, but it doesn't teach you how to be a better lover. Similarly, the sexual act that Lacan is talking about here is not what happens when you and your lady or your man crawl into that new mattress bed that you just created, that little nest, and you're in your... Now, that's not what this is about. No one has ever learned to be a better lover by reading Lacan or Freud, you've heard me say. The sexual act in question here is a more technical sophisticated understanding of the act, not coincidentally one that pops up between seminars 14 and 16, where we've been in this series and where we are now, namely seminars 15 on the psychoanalytic act. An act for Lacan is something that transforms its participants. It has a transformative effect on the subjectivities involved. So Lacan's theory of the act begins, I would suggest, in the 50s with what he's doing with full speech or true speech. It has a transformative effect. On the one hand, on the Analyzan's past, full speech transforms 
the Analyzants passed into their history. You've heard me say that before. Full speech goes on in Seminar 3 forward, really Seminar 2 forward, I'd suggest, to become a transformation of a pact, the establishment and the transformation of a pact that changes the participants. Do you, Devin, take Alan to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. Do you, Alan, take Devin to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. Congratulations, you all just changed yourselves. You're transformed. This also comports, of course, with what in speech act theory we would call a performative utterance. It's one that in so being spoken has a transformative effect on the individuals involved. Lacan's example of full speech as time would go on would become a structural example, a formal example that would have a shaping effect on the participants involved. The classic instance of which is when someone says to another, you are my wife. This bit on the sexual act is really interesting and gives us a lot to work with here. It also gives us a clue as to what this chapter is in fact about. Notice how this emerges. That there is nothing that can be structured that is properly the sexual act was the sentence we just heard. If this is correctly demonstrated, joins it, buckles it, is something that rejoins truth and knowledge from behind as conceivable. Now that's an awkward, clunky sentence, but this attempt to join truth and knowledge and this failure to successfully join or buckle these concepts, these experiences, is important here. And that is indeed what chapter 17 is about. The knots and the conundrums between truth and knowledge. Thinking, Lacan continues, is precisely this Vorstellungsrepräsentanz, this thing that represents the fact that there is something unrepresentable because barred by the prohibition of enjoyment. And don't forget here, this little bit, this little riff on the sexual act starts about enjoyment of the instrument that creates a barrier to the enjoyment that is the enjoyment of the other. At what level, Lacan asks and answers. At the most simple, at the organic level. And he ends categorically. The pleasure principle is this barrier to enjoyment and nothing else. So you start adding up these statements and you come up with some pretty clean, classic, mid to late Lacanian understandings of enjoyment relative to pleasure, of the phallus, of the fact that the big O other is only ever represented by a body, uh, and the failure of the sexual act, sexual rapport that follows. Notice where Lacan goes from here. We're on the next page, chapter 17 page 17 of the translation with which we're working, that it should be metaphorized in the prohibition of the mother is after all something that is historically contingent and the Oedipus complex itself is only attached to that. But the question lies deeper. Castration, namely the hole in the apprehension of this I do not know 
in quotation marks, as regards the enjoyment of the other. Castration is the whole in our apprehension of an I do not know as regards the enjoyment of the big O other. Ought to be rethought. Castration ought to be rethought as regards its relationship to the widespread, omnipresent effects of our science. So here again, you see Lacan shifting to the broad topic of psychoanalysis. And when he does, like his turns to set theory, rest assured he's going to say something pretty categorical and important. No exception here in chapter 17 of Seminar 16. Ought to be rethought as regards its relationships to the widespread omnipresent effects in our science. These two points that seem to be very far from this dam which ensures that this sex that we speak about all the time, in psychoanalysis of course, far from taking a step in any solution whatsoever of the field of the erotic, continues rather to obscure it. So the type of sex, to reiterate here, that Lacan is talking about is not that of the erotic. It's that of the sexual, which for him links up with the unconscious, as we've heard in previous lectures in this series. Let's see where he goes with this. The sex that we speak about in psychoanalysis doesn't bring us to a better understanding of the erotic, but instead obscures this. Lacan continues, and marks out more the inadequacy of our reference points, that there is a relationship between that and these effects that I call widespread of our knowledge. There's that knowledge term again. Namely, this prodigious unfurling of the relationship to objet a, that the use of our mass media are only the return, the presentification of, is not this just by itself the indication of what is involved in freedom of thought? It's tempting to think that freedom of thought is what's cracking here. It's an interesting phrase that keeps popping up. However, it's this introduction of objet a into this discussion of the inability to join or to buckle knowledge and truth that brings us to what I believe chapter 17 is in fact about. Note the image Lacan shifts to in the very next paragraph. The image is that of a Klein bottle. You can look it up if you haven't already seen one before. He says, because suppose that the structure is effectively here that of a Klein bottle, that the limit is effectively this locus of turning inside out, where what was the front becomes the back, and inversely, where apparently truth is separated from knowledge. So apparently, read illusorily, truth is separated from knowledge. Let it be sufficient for us to think that this limit is not fixed, that of its nature this limit is everywhere. Namely, that the question is posed for us of what to do so that there should not be stuck at a purely imaginary fixed point, this division between truth and knowledge. So the belief that there is some sort of a versus or a break between truth and knowledge does not hold for Lacan. And the image of the Klein bottle, where 
like a Mobius strip, interiors and exteriors, inverse and so forth, start allowing them to be traced on the exact same surface. So if you move around one surface of a Mobius strip, as you know, and you gradually move around the diagram, you wind up on the inverse side of where you began. The Klein bottle, similarly, you can put an ant on any surface of a Klein bottle and it can crawl through the interiors and then back out onto the exteriors. It's a fluid singular surface that doesn't allow for any fixed point of division. Lacan is saying this is important for understanding this bit about truth and knowledge, which seemed to be a side note in the last passage we were reading about the sexual act, but is in fact the centerpiece of this chapter. This illusion of a division between truth and knowledge. Continuing on. And it is indeed this about which, for want of having even begun to suggest the problem in this way, the psychoanalysts are content to give a demonstration of this form of absolutely not being able to detach themselves from a certain stasis of this limit. So here again, he has just queued up psychoanalysis, and now he's getting at one of his favorite targets, namely psychoanalysts. And not surprisingly, folks in the room, almost certainly, he's got folks in the room in mind that he says are not content to give a demonstration in this form of absolutely not being a, I'm sorry, who are content to give a demonstration in this form of absolutely not being able to detach themselves from a certain stasis of this limit. And here he's going to start shifting to a critique of what happens if you adhere to a purely imaginary fixed point of a division, an apparent division that is indeed false between truth and knowledge. In other words, if you find yourself thinking through and adhering to a division between truth and knowledge, Lacan's going to say that the consciousness that you're operating with here is a false consciousness. And there are implications for clinging to this imaginary fixed point of a division. Here are some. Every treatment of neurosis that limits itself to the exhaustion of the identifications of the subject, namely, very precisely, of that by which he is reduced to the little o other. It's an odd sentence. No treatment of these identifications, we will come back to it, carries in itself any promise of resolution of what constitutes the knot of the neurotic. What he seems to be saying here is that if an analyst clings to an imaginary fixed division between truth and knowledge, they result in... Um, an inability to understand the knot of neurosis. And it suggests, in turn, Lacan is here saying, that the analyst would rely on an exhaustion of the identifications of the subject as perhaps an endpoint for analysis. And what he's saying is that this would in no way go close to the knot of the neurotic. This, in other words, would not be doing the job of analysis as Lacan thinks it ought to be done. What constitutes the knot for the neurotic, he continues, I will not say here today. I would be forced to go too quickly. But what I mean 
is that because of what is involved in the nature of the neurotic, which is profoundly that he is asked what is involved in his desire, can the question not be posed whether the psychoanalyst is not here complicit by sustaining without knowing it the foundation of the structure of the neurotic, namely that his desire can only be sustained from this demand. So the analyst here is one who asks the neurotic to explain and delve into the involvements of his desire. And as a result, the analyst here is complicit by sustaining without knowing it the foundation of the structure of the neurotic, this knot of neurosis that Lacan is here saying is relevant, untouched by the treatment of identifications, and yet will not be explained further in this particular lecture here on chapter 17, he says. Namely, that his desire can only be sustained from this demand, presumably the demand of the analyst that the analyzand explain what is involved in his desire. In a word, curiously, if one can say that analysis consisted in a rupture with hypnosis, think, of course, the origin of psychoanalysis, as a rupture uh, with the hypnotic tradition in, in, in Freud's work. It is precisely for a reason that is quite surprising when one considers it. It is that in analysis, at least in the form in which it stagnates, it is the analyst that is hypnotized. So what he's looking at here is the way that an analyst who relies on a purely imaginary fixed division between truth and knowledge allows the analysis to stagnate. Stagnate at the level of working through the identifications of the subject. Working through the desire of the subject. And doing so all at the behest of the analyst. A demanding other that says, let's go ahead and talk through your desire. And this, for Lacan, again, results in stagnation. Notice what it looks like. It is the analyst that is hypnotized. At the end, the analyst ends up by becoming the look and the voice of his patient. This is very different from what is presented, an illusion of thought as recourse to the clinic. What's unfortunate about all this is that Lacan suggests that it marks an illusion of thought, a kind of consciousness about how analysis is supposed to go. And on my reading of this paragraph or two here, it would be a false consciousness. There's more to say about this, and I would suggest that the best way to, to delve further into this tradition that he's talking about as being highly problematic, stagnated, and the like, is actually to move back a little bit into another of Lacan's seminars, namely Seminar 11, particularly toward the end of Seminar 11, when you see Lacan working through one of the final diagrams in 11, namely the internal eight, and the role of identification in there. All of this is developed in our series on Seminar 11 toward the end, but it might be worth returning to. And the reason why I say that is because this passage that we've just been reading, Lacan says it begins with an understanding of the Klein bottle. In other words, you can start with the logic of the Klein bottle, which undermines 
allows you to topologically undermine the purely fixed imaginary point of division between truth and knowledge that this stagnated form of psychoanalysis depends upon. What I would suggest, though, is this turn towards analysis and exhaustion of the subject's identifications around exploring their desire at the behest of the analyst and the analyst winding up hypnotized, I would suggest that a better diagram for understanding what Lacan is up to here is actually the diagram with which chapter 17 begins, which is not that of a Klein bottle, but Wait for it, not surprisingly, it's that of an internal eight. The same diagram that we see toward the end of Seminar 11, when Lacan is also highly critical of the exhaustion of identifications. In other words, around someone talking through their desires, unconscious and otherwise. That diagram of an internal eight pops up at the start of chapter 17. And what, by God, is in this diagram, but two words, truth and knowledge. Okay, we're going to take a kind of circuitous route to the very topic that we finally arrived at. This stagnated form of analysis that is premised on a false division between truth and knowledge, and this internal eight that we see at the front of chapter 17. Before we thread all these needles, I think we should just focus on the truth knowledge topic. It really is the centerpiece of chapter 17. It's what this chapter is about. Before we do this retroactive return to seminar 11 and a return to the internal eight that we see discussed there, let's just stick with what's in front of us for a minute. Chapter 17 Seminar 16 is about truth and knowledge. You know what else, though? It's also about Hegel. And that's one of the things I love about this chapter. You get that truth and knowledge popping in an internal aid on page 1. On page 10 of the translation we're working with, you get some really clear and concise statements of Hegel's thought as Lacan sees it. My point in bringing this up is to give us a bit of an outline for reading this chapter by reading what Lacan himself actually says about Hegel in a kind of summative statement of why he thinks Hegel is important. You don't need to read secondary scholars on this topic. Secondary scholars who all too often limit Lacan's reading of Hegel to Lacan's training with Kojiv around a very specific chapter in the Phenomenology of Spirit centered on the dialectic of lordship and bondage. There's a hell of a lot more than that that's popping in the phenomenology. If you ever just sat down and started to work through the phenomenology, it's a veritable shopping mall. You move through each chapter, trying on whatever item of clothing you might find in that room and asking yourself, how good does this shit fit? And I would wager... Every time I've read the phenomenology, in fact, with groups, this is always happening. There is always this point in the reading of the phenomenology of spirit where someone finds themselves in the book and you finally arrive at some stage of the unfolding of thought and you say, you know what? 
This is how I see the world. This makes a lot of sense to me. This is where the clothes all fit. The phenomenology of spirit is kind of like that. In reading this text, you find yourself at various stages. You may even see previous versions of yourself in different chapters. It's great to find out when you were a Stoic, when you were a Christian, when you were the Lord, and when you were the bondsman. If you want to stick to that little section in the Phenomenology of Spirit that everyone's fascinated with, but there's a hell of a lot more going on there, way more clothes to try on, beware of the clothes that feel like they fit in the Phenomenology. Here in chapter 17 of Seminar 16, Lacan's going to tell you why he thinks Hegel is important. Check this out. It is almost impossible to undo the fascination of Hegel. It is only some people of bad faith who consider that I have promoted Hegelianism within the Freudian debate. Nevertheless, you must not imagine that I think that one can finish with Hegel like that. And then you get this terrific sentence, a three-part sentence, where you kind of get the sense of how Lacan, in a broad way, sees Hegel and why Hegel is important to psychoanalysis. It's a great little passage. This notion that the truth of thinking is elsewhere than in itself, okay, that's the first statement, and is necessitated every moment by the relation of the subject to knowledge, that's the second statement, and that this knowledge itself is conditioned by a certain number of necessary phases. That's the third statement. All of this is a grid whose applicability we cannot but sense at every instance, at every detour of our experience. It is of exemplary value as an exercise, as a formation. And here he might as well be talking about the reading of the phenomenology. It is of exemplary value as an exercise, as a formation. It is really necessary to make an effort at disorganizing a veritable awakening to ask ourselves why, however little I may know it, there is this delay which means that I must think in order to know. So, thinking and knowing are popping here in chapter 17. Hegel is giving us some sort of a guidance, some sort of a foundation for how to start working through this. And the premises are three. First, the truth of thinking is elsewhere than in itself. Two, the truth of thinking in this elsewhere is necessitated every moment by the relation of subject to knowledge. And three, this knowledge is conditioned by a certain number of necessary phases. And that really is the clue to the reading of the phenomenology here. The dressing rooms you just heard me talk about, the phases of knowledge, of thought also, that pass through any reading of the phenomenology. Lacan is almost here advising readers of his work to just take a minute. Hell, Take a summer. Hell, spend a whole summer on a single paragraph in the phenomenology if you really want to have some fun. And work through this text. It is of exemplary value as an exercise, 
as a formation. And I bring this up because we just finished talking about, in the very same chapter, the stagnation of analysis around an imaginary fixation of the division between truth and knowledge. And here we've got a shift towards thinking and knowledge as well. And an exercise that is exemplary, that is important, that may even be sufficient to help us avoid the stagnation that Lacan returns to later on in this chapter, hearkening back to his critique of uh, identification analysis um, in Seminar 11. I want to see where this goes. It's experimental, but this riff on Hegel is great for all these reasons. It summarizes in many ways why Lacan thinks Hegel is important. It puts us on advisory note to not simply read secondary scholars on Hegel, certainly not on Lacan's relation to Hegel, but to sit down with the phenomenology ourselves and see if we ourselves can find where the clothes fit us best. All of this stuff with thinking, truth, knowledge, and the like starts to be fleshed out as the chapter unfolds and really starts on the very next page, on page 11. Page 11, chapter 17, it gives us some stuff to read. And sometimes the best thing to do is to just sit down with these texts and just read them. And that's kind of what we're going to do here. We're just going to take a look at pages 11 and 12. You may have read them before. Let's read them together. The paragraph I want to start with is not the one that talks about the phenomenology of spirit. It's not the one that talks about Kant and Newton. It's not the one that ends in theology. It's the one on page 11 that begins, the difference between Hegel and Freud is the following. Thinking is not simply the question of the question put about the truth of knowledge, which is already a lot and essential in the Hegelian step. Thinking, says Freud, bars the entry to a knowledge. Do I need to recall what is at stake in the unconscious, namely how the first access to a knowledge had been thought out? The Selbstbewusstsein in Hegel, this self-consciousness, is I know what I think. The Freudian trauma is an I do not know. And think back to the not knowing around castration and the enjoyment of the other that we were just reading about. The Freudian trauma is an I do not know. Itself unthinkable, since it supposes an I think, dismantled of all thinking. The point of origin, not to be understood developmentally, but structurally, when it is a matter of understanding the unconscious, is that it is this nodal point of a failing knowledge that there is born, in the form, then, of what can be called, on condition that you put the last two words in a sort of parenthesis, the desire to know. This is simply unconscious desire in its structure. Now let's back up, because that sentence, no matter how many times you read it, needs to be read just once more. 
The point of origin not to be understood developmentally, but structurally. Now that's important here. Lacan is not a developmental thinker. He doesn't play that stage game. You see in the phenomenology this kind of stage development. Lacan really wants to think structurally instead, not developmentally. And a lot of Lacan's diagrams, hell, it's hard to think of one that doesn't allow for a kind of structural movement, a co-constitutive moment where terms are firing at the exact same time. This is not a developmental theorist at work. This is a structural, logical theorist at work. Precisely, Lacan has a strong theory of chronological time, the way that discourse like a melody unfolds linearly across time, sequentially, diachronically. Think back to Lacan's 1950s stuff. But note, anytime he brings that up, he's going to couple that with a synchronic element, a retroactive element, the same retroactive arrows that we see in the graph of desire, the same retroactive arrows that we see in the diagrams that we've done in this series and previous series. Lacan thinks not just chronologically, but also logically, which introduces a retroactive element to his theory of time. What results is not so much a theory of time, but a temporally infused understanding of structure and the type of temporality that is at work in Lacanian notions of structure. Um, is, it, finds, it finds few analogs in the history of Western thought, the most substantial of which worth noting here is the work of Walter Benjamin. Late Benjamin thought is terrific for understanding what Lacan is up to with time and structure. Anyway, the point of origin here, not to be understood developmentally but structurally, is that it is in this nodal point of a failing knowledge that there is born in the form of what can be called on condition that you put these last two words in a sort of parentheses, the desire to know. So what is this origin, this zero point where knowledge fails? It's the unconscious, the space where I do not know. This is the Freudian trauma. This is the origin of, of the process we're going to be talking about here. And this process, Lacan says, takes its next step around the desire to know. So there's the unconscious that gives way to or conditions this desire to know. And the way that Lacan has this popping is desire and then with to know in parentheses. Now it's unclear how exactly to know got in parentheses, but if you look at page 12, top of page 12, you see this desire to know. And Lacan is queuing it up explicitly on condition that you put the last two words in a sort of parenthesis, the desire to know. Let's read the sentence again. The point of origin, not to be understood developmentally, but structurally, when it is a matter of understanding the unconscious, is that it is in the no this nodal point of a failing knowledge, the unconscious, that there is born in the form of what can be called, on the condition that you put the last two words in a sort of parenthesis, the desire to know. The desire to know is conditioned by, is birthed within, the nodal point of the unconscious. This is simply unconscious desire in its structure. 
So you've heard about desire, you've heard about unconscious desire, and maybe you've heard the wrong idea that somehow analysis culminates in the exploration of one's unconscious desire. Notice Lacan is here saying that's where some shit starts. This desire to know, to know oneself, to know thyself. Um, And ultimately that's insufficient here. The desire to know is simply the first step on a longer trajectory. First, the origin, the zero point of all this is the unconscious, which gives birth to the desire to know. We can go on reading on page 12, but it gets a little better, and we can move a little faster if we jump down to the bottom, the last paragraph. The step that Freud makes us take concerning this function of thinking with respect to the self-consciousness is that the essence of the I know that I think of this self-consciousness is nothing other than the excessive accent that is put on what I know while forgetting this I do not know, which is its real origin. So the issue here is that the unconscious conditions a desire to know that then gets caught up with a thinking, I know that I think, of self-consciousness. The excessive accent that is put on what I know while forgetting this I do not know, which is its real origin. So this thinking puts an excessive accent on knowledge. I know that I think. And this excess is a screen or a distraction resulting in a forgetting of the original I do not know that got the process going. So our desire to know meets up with thought. And suddenly we know that we think. And here you have self-consciousness. Remember, this is about the distinction between Hegel and Freud. And you don't have to be a Hegel scholar to make good sense of this stuff. And the excess with which this bond between knowledge and thought, I know that I think, gets formed, is one that allows the unconscious to slip into forgetting. Isn't that interesting? This very sight of forgetting becomes itself a forgotten sight. It is already against the division that this I do not know implies that the simple fact of the presence of the negation puts in suspense, as I might say, check it out. But precisely, I am not saying it. It is an I do not know that the I know that I think is designed to screen in a definitive fashion. Again, the unconscious gives birth to a desire to know. This desire to know couples with a thought that is perceived erroneously as self-consciousness. And we get so wrapped up in this I know that I think in self-consciousness that we lose track of the very origin of all of this, which is a site where we do not know. It is an I do not know that the I know that I think is designed to screen in a definitive fashion. The I know that I think that results in self-consciousness by screening the original zero point of knowledge failing of the unconscious, it suggests to us that self-consciousness, this Selbstbewusstsein, is in fact, once more, 
false consciousness. Notice where Lacan goes next. The truth, henceforth, is no longer the place where this that I think in Hegel really is. The truth is the disintegration of the place from which this that I think is motivated. Note that if this ought to be taken in all its rigor, there is nothing to be said about this place which has any sense. It is created by a that means nothing. It is the place where that means nothing commands a replacement that means. This is a terrific way to end this initial foray into chapter 17, where Lacan is guiding us from an internal eight with truth and knowledge on the inside to a summative statement of Hegel and how he sees Hegel operating to this further development of the relationship between the unconscious as an origin, a zero point, some place where I don't know, as a failing knowledge, to a desire to know that is an unconscious desire, to a kind of consciousness that knows that it's thinking, that effectively screens the unconscious, that papers over it, that allows it to fall into oblivion, which marks this kind of self-consciousness as a kind of false consciousness. And then we could ask the question of knowledge around certain disciplines that would be founded on this type of self-consciousness. Specific S2s, if you will. Specific subsets of the big other. The question is how all of these elements would hang together. The unconscious origin, the desire to know, that founds a kind of false consciousness that would in turn become the basis for specific discourses, disciplinary formations, knowledges, um, call it what you will. Uh, we've been using the term S2 to designate these moments. Something is occurring here at the bottom of page 12, top of page 13. The truth henceforth is no longer the place where this that I think really is. This I know that I think. Lacan saying the truth is not there. The truth is the designation of the place from which this that I think is motivated. The that I think is motivated by the desire in parents to know that is in turn motivated by the unconscious. So you can run this backwards and say, okay, well, that's the account that we have here. But remember, Lacan is not thinking developmentally. He's thinking structurally. And so the question becomes, is there a structure that we can rely upon to help show how these experiences, these moments, are occurring structurally, logically, not developmentally? It's tough because the developmental theory and discussion of these materials makes them easier to state. But they, it has... It runs a very, very uh, strong risk of slipping into a kind of um, progressive form of thinking that leaves a lot of Lacan's structural, logical, really most robust thinking around time 
and transformation out. And it's a, always a challenge in talking about these materials. When you have someone like Freud, who's very strongly influenced by stage thinking, and then you have Lacan, who brings it up often enough, but at the same time then undercuts it and says, but I want to do this logically, not developmentally, then the question is, how is it possible to talk within this tradition, structurally and logically, without slipping into the developmental misconceptions? And Lacan's answer is going to be at the level of the diagram, at the level of topology, at the level of a structural drawing. The one we have in front of us is that of the internal eight. Let's see what we can make of this internal eight relative to these final sentences here. The truth is the designation of the place from which this that I think is motivated. Note that if this ought to be taken in all its rigor, there is nothing to be said about this place which has any sense. It is created by a that means nothing. It is the place where that means nothing commands a replacement that means. What could we replace this with to provide ourselves with a bit of meaning around this space this original zero point that means nothing. This is an invitation that we have here in the middle of chapter 17. But there are lots of different ways that we could schematize this. What you see now in front of you is the diagram of the interior eight that you see popping in seminar 11. It's the first of those diagrams in seminar 11. The second one is the one that we are angling towards with all of its additional terms like identification, desire, transference, demand, and the drive as you heard us in our series on seminar 11 explain. But here's an earlier more primitive version of that diagram and I think it can help us understand a little bit more about what's happening in this relationship between the unconscious, the desire to know, consciousness, false and otherwise, and the specific knowledge or discourse that might flow from, from these elements. So what you heard me say in our series on Seminar 11 is that there's some movement here that is missing from Lacan's depiction. There's a flow to this diagram. And recall what we've been talking about here in terms of thinking structurally now you'll note I'm not exactly sticking with the interior eight that we scaled up in our series on seminar 11 because I want to just reappropriate this diagram for understanding what's happening at the level of the unconscious in relationship here to the false consciousness of the I know that I think that we were just talking about. So we'll go back and revise this truer to our earlier interpretation, which had the transference dropping down and then two arrows of opportunity here. Right now, though, just focus on the one way street that is this diagram. And what I want to focus on first is the fact that there is going to be a Passover here. And you can think about this. Take any loop of string and make an interior eight out of it. What you'll find is that there is one strand of the loop that will go over, will pass over 
another strand of the loop. And so I'm drawing this here to indicate that the purple strand is passing over the blue strand. And that's important here because what I would suggest is that the unconscious is precisely here. It is underneath the purple strand of the loop where the blue passes beneath it. So this would be the unconscious. As the zero point or the origin where I don't know, a failing knowledge, all the things that we just heard being discussed here. The truth of thinking, in fact, is here where the blue strand passes underneath the purple, where the unconscious is screened by knowledge, especially knowledge of one's thought. What I would suggest moving on here is that at about your nine o'clock, you'd have the desire to know. And recall how Lacan puts this in the passages we were just reading. The unconscious is the zero point or the origin that conditions a desire to know, which we know is an unconscious desire. At the bottom of this diagram, I think we could put something like the consciousness in question. This is the I know that I think, the Selbstbewusstsein, that screens the unconscious. This is where we would see our, our false consciousness, would be down here. It's thinking. And then out here, at your three o'clock, this is where we'd see a specific knowledge, a discourse, a discipline, what we've been calling in this series an S2. And as this would loop around, it would be the very thing that would screen the unconscious. If you wanted to diagram this stuff, in a way that allows movement, but doesn't slip into a kind of developmental, progressive theory, this might be one way to do it. What I like about this element that we're developing here is this pink connection here that marks the relation of the subject to knowledge. So at the top here, you have the truth of thinking. At the bottom, you have thinking in its false form. Here, connecting these two, you have knowledge, the relation of the subject to knowledge in particular that we just heard Lacan talking about. I think this is a pretty good starting place. I don't think I would want to stop the thinking here, but it does give us a good diagrammatic way to start working toward a more developed, richer sense of the interior eight, the internal eight, this flipping of an eight upper segment down into its lower segment. That's why we would call it an interior or an internal eight. 
And it can help us understand how these four elements, the unconscious, the desire to know, false consciousness at the level of I know that I think, and then specific discourses would emerge. Again, I wouldn't stop here, but I think it's a very fine starting place. All right, so what happens if we now remove the pieces we just installed on this interior eight and start getting back to where we were at the end of seminar 11 around what Lacan is doing with this interior eight. And what we saw there was that he adds a vertical-ish, and again, we're keeping with movement here, arrow of transference. He puts desire out here, identification here, and demand out like this. And what I suggested in reading this interior aid at the end of seminar 11 is that you'd have a flow of movement kind of like this. The same flow of movement that we see in our last version of this interior eight. I'm making the arrows a little lighter so they don't get so much in the way, but also so that I can highlight this opportunity. You can go back and review the lectures. I'm not gonna go through the entire thing, but what I wanna note here is that at this moment, what would happen is that this arrow would hit this point, drop down, and then there would be a choice. You could go counterclockwise up this way, or you could go clockwise up this way. And the clockwise movement here is the one that here in chapter 17, Lacan is criticizing as a stagnant form of psychoanalysis, where you're simply working through the analyzans identifications. Far more productive is to move this way. And you have to recall what you just saw, where the unconscious would be this point underneath the Passover, the overpass, if you will, that would be constituted here by this return to demand from identification. So you get a return back to the demanding other here. And the unconscious would be this place that is screened. It's the underpass. So part of the problem of the analysis of identifications, according to Lacan, and part of the hypnotic effect that it has on analyst and analyst and alike, is that it allows them to take an overpass back to demand instead of working through the underpass that would bring them into the field of the unconscious. Which 
as you heard me say in our series on seminar 11, would also be the pathway to the drive. Now, what happens along this outer circle, we can talk about. But the interesting thing here is the way that demand slips into transference and then inclines analysis in the direction of the analysis of identifications instead of this path of obja where the analyst's desire the analyst as a desirous and fallen being would become a focal point on the way to a discovery of the analyzan's own drive again we worked all this out so i'm not going to go too far into it but i do want to note some connections here because remember for us the stake is an apparent division or separation of truth from knowledge that is purely imaginary and the first interiorate we drew showed us that there's this continuum this spectrum this through line between truth and knowledge truth at the level of the unconscious and knowledge as operationalized in the field of self-consciousness and Lacan's argument is that analysts often get stuck here unable to detach themselves and their analyzants from the false belief that there's a division and so what we're doing is we're trying to correct that by first showing this continuum of overpass and underpass between the unconscious and self-consciousness and now what we're doing is stretching that diagram back toward this stagnant analysis where analysts get stuck statically at a stasis constituted by their fixed imaginary understanding of a division false division between knowledge and truth Lacan says that this would result in the treatment of identifications only ever at the level of the analyzant's desire and what we can add here is that it would be a desire let's add some more parentheses to know more parentheses about themselves that's the field of identification analysis that Lacan is railing against here the question is how can we expand this how can we work this in such a way that would show perhaps an opportunity to break out now we can go back and read seminar 11 and get some great clues about how this thing typically goes so if we follow let's make this a fully yellow arrow here just for purposes of clarity if you follow from demand up to the drop down of transference and then you allow for the analysis of identifications this yellow arrow punctuated by the green here to mark the overpass what do you have here well you have an analysis of identifications and I would suggest that what makes this especially problematic is that this would result in an identification with the analyst at the end of psychoanalysis and that is no bueno you don't actually want that to happen according to Lacan so the D out here is the demand of the other and in analysis it's at the start typically by the analyzand 
Here, the analyst is positioned as a subject supposed to know, an omniscient being who could solve the problems that drove the analyzand into therapy in the first place. This subject supposed to know, you should hear this as the big other, as fantasized, as someone who is whole, complete, with all the info that could possibly be required to help the analyzand reach some sort of a state of, I don't know, uh, an ability to, to return to their lost satisfaction that brought them into therapy. Transference, we learned in Seminar 11, is what happens in an analysis of this sort when things get closed up. Transference, Lacan tells us in Seminar 11, is a closing up of the unconscious. So that's what's happening here is you start in the field of demand. It can be the analyzand demanding an answer as to their neurosis. It could be the analyst accepting that demand and issuing another one. I demand that we talk about your desire. In any case, transference comes along and marks a closing up of what limited opportunity to explore the unconscious um, could have been there. This would be a separation of demand from drive too. It's incredibly problematic because it tills the soil for an analysis of identifications. And here what you would see again is an analyst who positions themselves or allows themselves to be positioned as a full other omniscient other, a demanding other, which as we learned in our series on seminar 10 while reading anxiety, is that this is much more appealing to the neurotic than the confrontation of ang with anxiety that would come from accepting that the other is in fact barred and desirous and the like. Much easier to see them as whole and thus able to issue demands instead of fragmented and thus suffering from a kind of desire, a structural desire, we would say. Because, remember, the big other is not embodied. Its avatars are, but the big other itself is not. It is always the barred other as a structure or a logic in which something is continually dropping out. This is part of what we've learned in this series on Seminar 16. I want to emphasize, though, what Lacan says in 11 about this analysis of identifications. He wants to say that this is not a specular operation. And what's at stake here in this identification that might be established between the analyst and the analyzand is that you would get a support for further specular moments. In other words, what's coming out of this field of identification is in fact an ego ideal. This is part of what gets established here. And Lacan says that it allows for and supports more specular moments. The main thing that he notes for our purposes is that it conditions a kind of narcissistic love of oneself by and in terms of another. This, he says in Seminar 11, is the point at which the subject sees himself as lovable. The danger of the analysis of identifications is that it re results in a kind of imaginary narcissistic love of oneself, but only insofar as the subject sees himself as lovable from another's point of view. Now, we don't need to go too far into this, 
Because remember, what we're trying to do is just dredge back up some supports for what Lacan is doing in his critique of identifications in seminar 16. I think one thing we could also add here is that this might be a place where we see S1 operating as a unary trait, as that internalized element of an avatar of the big slash barred other that would form an ego ideal in an analyzand. And it would be one, not coincidentally here, that would also till the soil for a series of imaginary relations to specular objects. And in seminar 16, we would just call these commodities. So there's the real danger here in moving along the yellow arrow. The question now becomes, what about uh, this, uh, this uh, you know, counterclockwise turn here? What about the turn from transference into the field of desire and back towards the unconscious? This is something that also comes up in Seminar 11 and is worth noting here. Lacan doesn't really name this counterclockwise turn out of transference. He starts to call it alienation. Separation seems to be a better word that we could assign for this, but this would ultimately be an alienation in and ultimately a separation from the big other via the analyst, via the analyst's desire. And Lacan's argument here is that the analyst has to fall from the elevated position that identification, the left side here, would suggest. And his argument further is that there is a maximal distance between these realms. This is crucial. He says this is the mainspring of what I would suggest is good psychoanalysis, is when the distance between the capital I and the lowercase italicized D, between identification with an analyst mistakenly perceived to be whole, as a subject supposed to know, and a desirous analyst, in other words, signifiers of the fact that the other is barred, and what can happen in that moment. Here what you would see is subjacent to this arrow of demand, there would be this arrow. And I really want you to notice this here. The arrow of demand, this yellow arrow out here, has a parallel arrow, an internal arrow that runs alongside it. The word Lacan uses is subjacent. Subjacent to demand and the subject supposed to know is this other arrow. This would be one where the subject is allowed by the fall of the analyst to see himself as caused by a lack, by objet a. And it would be one that, according to Lacan, would bring demand back to the drive, away from identification. Note the move. It's away from identification that this subjacent arrow moves. This would, in many ways, also 
cross or traverse the plane of identification. And you should really hear this also as a crossing or traversing of the fundamental fantasy that the other exists, right? I would suggest that if you have out here the fantasy, over here you'd have a turn towards this other mathem, namely that of the drive, which has a very similar structure. Here, what you would encounter were you the analyzan moving in this path is not signs that the big other exists, but instead signifiers of the fact that the big other is fallen, that they lack, that they are incomplete. The analyst's desire here remains a kind of X factor, not something that is precluded by this fantasy of the analyst as a subject supposed to know, omniscient and thus without lack, and thus without desire. Instead, that desire remains a kind of enigma here, a little objet a, that the analyzant can move through. And move through, again crucially, at a maximal distance from the idealizing eyes that make up this identificatory analysis that is stagnant and mutually hypnotic, out here you'd also have obja, and not just that of the analyst's enigmatic desire, but also that of the analyzand. I would suggest that this obja here is what is lost in the commodity that is lost in the imaginary objects. So we're starting to talk again about the screen and we're getting to this underpass that goes underneath the arrow of demand and identification. This unconscious element that is screened over by the illusion of consciousness that would occur in a stagnant analysis of one's identifications. If the yellow arrow here results in a kind of narcissistic love, you heard me say that this teal arrow culminating in the drive doesn't result in narcissistic love, but what Lacan at the end of seminar 11 calls limitless love, love beyond the law. And at the level of the drive, something would follow, a restoration of life of sorts. I think one of the open questions here is how do you get from an experience of the drive back to the field of demand? What Lacan says in seminar 11 is that this circuit has to be run multiple times and that a training analysis would be one in which this pattern is established. Notice how with my gestures, I'm combining our two versions of the interior eight that we've been working with here. A training analysis would be one that comes up, drops down, and continually, repeatedly would take the counterclockwise turn out of the transference. The open question here is, what's going on that allows the drive to slip back in to the logic of demand? 
In other words, how does the D in drive return from its faded out status in the experience of drive satisfaction? Lacan does not answer that question in Seminar 11. All he tells us is what you would get if you could repeatedly and consistently take the counterclockwise turn out of transference. You would get a kind of limitless love. And this is quintessentially, effectively, where the damn thing ends. It's in fact the final sentence in Seminar 11. If we were to bring this forward into the work that we've been doing here with Seminar 16, I would suggest that perhaps if you've got an S1 out here in the field of identification functioning as the unary trait, you'd probably have an S1 out here. You know where I'm going with this. Functioning as a master signifier in the disruptive individual sense that we have talked about in here, the singular sense that we've discussed in this series on Seminar 16. And I think that what you might want to do is start overlaying what we're doing here in the field of the analysis of identifications, which is a failed, stagnant, mutually hypnotic analysis, and this counterclockwise approach to analysis, where the analyst falls, and in falling reveals their enigmatic lack and opens the door for the analyzant to become curious about their own. And in fact, so curious about their own lack that they would lose sight of any particular objects, lost or otherwise, and instead become more interested with the openings that structure their lack. The openings that also are left in the field of the erogenous zones at the level of the drive, where the subject fades demand follows suit, and you're left with a series of rim-like, edge-like structures, which we've discussed numerous times. One more question. The question that we see at the end of chapter 17, around the exhaustion of the identifications of the subject that we've been discussing, and the way that this doesn't ever really address what constitutes, as Lacan puts it, the knot of the neurotic. What constitutes the knot for the neurotic? I will not say here today. Lacan refuses to trot it out because he would be forced to go too quickly. Recall these passages here that we've read. But what I mean is that because of what is involved in the nature of the neurotic, which is profoundly that he has asked what is involved in his desire, can the question not be posed whether the psychoanalyst is not here complicit by sustaining without knowing it the foundation of the structure of the neurotic, namely that his desire can only be sustained from this demand. What I'm suggesting here is that the yellow arrow from demand down to transference, up through identification, and then across the overpass that screens the unconscious back into the field of demand is precisely this. This is the knot for the neurotic. And you might even read that red dot that marks the underpass of the unconscious as precisely the knot point. The same way in the number eight and in 
its interior version here, you see a knotting of sorts. I wonder if looking at this diagram a little more closely, we might suggest what Lacan here refuses to tell us, namely that this is indeed the knot for the neurotic. You see desire here, pursued at the demand of an impossibly suspected full other. Whether we can make heads or tails of this, whether Lacan himself will ever return to the topic of the knot for the neurotic, bear in mind I'm reading this stuff with you, so I don't know if he's coming back to this knot of the neurotic business. For sure, one thing that we've seen over the years is that when Lacan says, I'm going to talk about this next time, he sometimes does, but just as often, perhaps even more often than not, he doesn't return to the topic. So it may remain an open question for us. We'll see. But as I look at this diagram, I can't help but wonder if this is indeed the knot of the neurotic that he's talking about in chapter 17. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. Thank you.